All right. So don't, don't mind Elliot. Um, we're just moving a few things while we get going here. Okay, if you're new, the last four weeks, we have um, unpacked kind of a broad picture of what it looks like to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what Jesus did, okay? Going forward from now until the end of the year, okay, what we're going to be doing is asking the question, if we're to become like Jesus, how does that happen? How does that work? And, and how do we change, and how are we transformed to be like Jesus, uh, become like Jesus of Nazareth. And, and really, there's a gap. I mean, if we're all honest, there's a gap between who we are and being like Jesus. Unless you think you're there, which donuts are already out. You can just go do that. Um, but if, you, if you've, you've got it figured out, that's great. Um, because there's a gap between who we are now in the present and who we ache to become in the future, who God wants us to be. And so uh, apprenticeship to Jesus is about closing that gap, okay? And it happens over time, and we'll get to that, and it happens through even the hard knocks of life, but it's about closing that gap. And remember really quickly, there's a process to this called formation that we talked about the last number of weeks. One of the things we said was that we're all being formed. Like you just wake up in the morning, and you just turn on the news or listen to the radio or whatever, like anything you do in life, if, if you're not careful, you're, you're just going to be formed unintentionally, okay? We call that unintentional spiritual formation. And you're formed by the stories you think and believe or the stories you don't believe. You're formed by the relationships in your life. Uh, you're formed by the habits that you've developed over your life. Remember, you're the sum of your habits. And then all of that takes place in an environment, okay? So there's like a a beautiful, like, perfect incubation happening in your life unintentionally, and you are being formed by it. What we're arguing is that there's a way to be intentional, to counter that formation that happens unintentionally in our life with intentional spiritual formation. And we talked about teaching, that that is an intentional thing that counters the stories that we know. Uh, we talked about community that counters the relationships in our life, like intentional community. We're going to talk about that in a couple weeks. And then we talked about spiritual practices that actually counter the habits in our lives that we just have formed naturally. And then we talked about the Holy Spirit being the, the change, really, in our life that changes our environment. And, and what, we want, what we're saying is that discipleship to Jesus upsets all the unintentional spiritual formation in our life. And uh, so through teaching and practice and community, we partner with Jesus to become like Jesus. You have a part, God has a part, okay? Now there's a danger there because some people really, uh, there's a danger of sliding to one end of a spectrum or another, meaning one end of the spectrum is that um, you do all the work. And if you've ever met people like this, they're exhausting, right? They're just like, goal-oriented, and I've got to do this, and I've got to do that, and it's a lot of self-effort, and that becomes legalism, or you can slide to the other end of the pendulum, and that is, it's all up to God, like, I really don't have to do anything, you know, I'll just show up at church, and we'll see what happens, and there is a tension here that we have to live into, 
And the tension is, is that's kind of a both and. We play a part, God plays a part, okay? And we've been using that phrase the last number of weeks, without him we can't, but without us he won't. So, you're just, but you just need to understand, you're just the side help, okay? It's not like a 50-50 thing. God does the heavy lifting in this relationship. Our job is to be intentional. Our job is to put ourselves in a position to hear from the Spirit, to be changed by the Spirit, okay? And so the goal is to take some real intentionality here in what we're doing and, and what our life looks like. And so I'm gonna start in first, uh, sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Read a couple verses, and then we're going to dive into some things. It says, Now the Lord is the Spirit. This is Paul talking to the Corinthians. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Okay? Okay. So we're going we're gonna to unpack that here in a bit. But what I want to do is I want to set up a couple of things for us, okay? One thing from philosophy, one thing from psychology, and then we're going to jump into the Old Testament. So if you're bored already, it's, you're just going to get more bored. Unless you're with me. You with me? All right, here we go. You guys are really convincing. One thing from philosophy really quickly uh, so if we have any philosophers in the room, um, you might enjoy this. One of the things that makes humans human is our will, okay? So uh, there's a philosopher named Harry Frankfurt. He is a philosopher from Princeton. In the 70s, he kind of coined this, this kind of uh, thing that we're going to look at here. It's called first-order desires. Actually, a different slide if you got the the first order desires, second order desires, okay, and second order volition, all right? So this is, we're going to just walk through these here really quick. First order desires are things like your need for food. They're like your base kind of animalistic desires, okay? So food, water, sleep, uh, sex, safety, dominance, these kind of like natural kind of human uh, things. And, and, and here's what the New Testament calls your flesh, like gossip, anger, uh, lying, manipulating people. This all comes from our first order desires, our need for dominance and, and all that kind of stuff. Then there's our second order desires. These are our higher human desires, right? So these are the things that we want to want, like self-control and patience things like that, okay? These are the things that we want to want. Then there's something called second-order volition. He argues that it's your ability to override, okay? Your ability to override your first-order desires with your second-order desires. Does that make sense? All right, so here's a quote from him. Hopefully that makes sense before I read this quote. Here's the quote. Freedom to do what one wants to do Analogously, then, the statement that a person enjoys freedom of the will means that he or she is free to want what they want to want. More precisely, it means that he or she is free to will what they want to will. 
It is in securing the, conform, uh, securing the conformity of their will to their second-order volitions, then, that a person exercises freedom of the will. Now, if that sounds super nerdy and boring, listen. What he's trying to get to is this idea that saying, he, here's what he's saying, freedom is not the ability to do whatever you want. Contra the progressive movement, um, uh, uh, in our society, the, the ability to give in to any impulse or any desire, that's actually not freedom, according to Frankfurt. That's actually slavery, according to Scripture. He's saying that this is not freedom. In the language of the New Testament and, and in psychology and philosophy, freedom is the ability to want the right thing and to will the right thing. And to overcome your first order desire, okay, or in the language of the New Testament, to overcome the flesh, with your second order desire, or in the language of the New Testament, live the way of Jesus. Does that make sense? Now, this means to live in freedom takes the work of the will, which is a human thing. And uh, psychology, let's just transition really quick to psychology. Psychology says your will is like a muscle. So if you've noticed that um, if you're on a diet, um, that means like, or, or you're watching what you eat or you're changing your eating habits, first thing in the morning, you're usually your strongest, right? You're usually not overeating first thing in the morning. It's as the day goes on and your will like loses power, at the end of the day, you're watching Biggest Loser eating a tub of ice cream, <laughs> right? Uh, you don't do that first thing in the morning. Well, if you do, then we should probably talk, but like, that's the idea behind this, okay? It's why it's uh, the first thing, it's, that's why psychologists say, the, the, do the hardest thing first in your day. Like, if you look at your day and you can tackle the hardest thing in your day first, that's actually a good thing. That's actually a very good psychological thing to do. And that's also why every dumb thing happens at night. Every dumb thing happens after 10 p.m. I was on a ride-along Halloween night, and it was about 10 o'clock at night, and the cop I was riding with, Officer Clark, he's like, this is where we get the real stupid teenagers, <laughs> right? The ones that are like, hey, let's go smash pumpkins and stuff like that. So... That's when this kind of stuff happens. And one of the key tasks, uh, like a, and from a psychological aspect, is learning how to exercise our will and to make it stronger, okay? So that in the moment you're tempted by your first-order desire, okay, that you actually have that second-order volition to override your first-order desire and to do your second-order desire. And so I know this is all kind of crazy, but this kind of this idea of how do we do that? Like, how do we do that? Like, when here's the thing with our will that everybody agrees in, in, the, in, the, in the professional world. We can't influence our will directly, meaning you can't sit there and go, willpower, engage. Like, now's the time. Work now, willpower. <laughs> That's not how it works. That would be awesome. Um, you can't influence your will directly, but you can influence your will 
indirectly. And that's through teaching, through the mind, through learning new ways of thinking. That's uh, through different practices in your life. That's through community that help change the influences on your life. Um, and, and for instance, back to the ride along, um, usually you don't do stupid things by yourself. Um, when you're a teenage boy, you usually do them with other people. And so if you change your community, chances are your behavior changes. So long before the moment of temptation is where the work is done. See, because the moment that temptation shows up is just when it highlights who you actually are as a person and what kind of person you are and what kind of person you're being formed into. So long before, okay, we can order our lives around teaching, practice, and community. And to say, uh, you know, to say uh, not what you want, uh, to say no to what you want in order to say yes to what you really want. Does that make sense? Um, and so I'm saying all this like you're like, okay, that sounds like really good news. But here's the really bad news. Ready for the bad news? The bad news is no matter how much willpower you have, you will never have enough to live the way of Jesus. Okay? No matter how much willpower, you won't have enough to live the way of Jesus. Listen, you can listen to a podcast, uh, you can read a book. Those things are great. Continue to do that. It will not get you there. Um, small changes in our lives are there. I mean, you can do a lot of small things in your life. Like recently, Angela and I are talking about how in the mornings we're going to try to push out the news in our life to do more reading of Scripture because it seems to change us. And that's something we can do with some willpower, okay? And that's, that's a really good thing. But once you bump into things in your life, patterns, maybe your family of origin, kind of stuff like that, personality stuff, things in your life that are like embedded and deep into your life, willpower won't work. What we need is access to a power beyond us, the Holy Spirit. So what I'm telling you this morning, okay, is that all those things are great. But unless we learn how to connect uh, uh, to, the, to the Spirit, we are going to continually bump up against the same things in our lives over and over and over. And that's why this is so important. So 2 Corinthians 3 is really important. And what's interesting about 2 Corinthians 3 is Paul is actually drawing on a really famous passage in the Old Testament. Um, and we're going to read that now. It's out of Exodus 34. Verse 29 to 35, it goes like this. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them. So Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him and he spoke to them. Afterward, all the Israelites came near him and he gave them all, all the commands the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what he had been commanded, they saw that his face was radiant. 
then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went to speak with the Lord. So Moses, on a regular basis, okay, has an encounter with the living God. And it says that the glory of the Lord, so God's presence really at that time in the cloud, the Holy Spirit, okay, uh, kind of like the, the precursors for what we understand as the Holy Spirit. And after every encounter with the living God, Moses is transformed. He's physically he's transformed. He's got like, his face is like a giant LED light, you know? It's just glowing and radiant. And, and here's the thing. The one thing I really want you to notice here. This is really important. Who all has access to God's presence in the story? Moses. That's it. The people don't. The high priest, the, they, they don't. Aaron doesn't. Only Moses. Now, flip back to 2 Corinthians. If you have a Bible, flip back. We're going to go a little bit earlier in the, in the passage. This is what's so amazing about Paul. Paul is like everything he writes is just dripping with the Old Testament, okay? And he says this, um, and this is, he wrote this as in a, a backdrop to Exodus 34. It says, verse 7, Now if the ministry that brought death which was engraved in letters on stone, remember the tablets, okay, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory. Transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? So he's comparing and contrasting what it was like for Moses coming down the mountains with the tablets, his face glowing, and he calls that transitory. Okay? That was temporary. He translates that. He, like, he like uh, puts that into uh, just kind of like a, a compare and contrast with what it looks like with the Spirit for all of us who have the Holy Spirit. If the ministry that brought condemnation, verse 9, was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if, that, if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory that which lasts? And then he says this in verse 12, Therefore, since we have such hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. You know, and after a while, it was, it was fading away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. And here's our text for the morning. Now the Lord is the Spirit. Listen, every single time that Paul talks about um, the Lord, it's usually who? It's usually Jesus. Except for in this moment. He usually writes about Jesus, but right here he means the Spirit, which is very amazing. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Freedom. And so in context, what Paul is saying is, how are people set free from bondage? How are people changed? Does he say willpower? 
No. Paul's answer is when people are set free, they're set free in the spirit of the Lord. They're set free in the presence of God, the Holy Spirit, God's empowering presence, the person, the power, and the presence of God. That's how people are changed. That's how people are set free. Now, what's very important is this is not like Star Wars. And what's so amazing, I actually read a study two weeks ago that it, it, it just kind of like asked people who are church-going people, um, and, and basically it found out that 70% of people who actively engage in the church think the Holy Spirit is like the force. Which is not true. And... Um, and, and here's what you need to understand. The spirit is a person, not an it. And this is so important for you to understand about this relationship we have with the spirit. Um, the scripture says he, and, and actually in many places in the scripture, Old and New Testament, the personal pronoun actually has a feminine quality to it. So you could actually argue that the Holy Spirit is a she. Now, you guys are probably freaking out at me, and that's okay. Talk to Randy McNeil. Uh, about this. He did all of his master's work on this, so you can talk about that with him. The spirit is, the important part is the spirit is a person, not a force. And the spirit is who empowers you and me to apprentice Jesus. We are changed with the spirit. Technically, the spirit is not just with you, like hanging out with you. The spirit is in you if you follow Jesus. Your body, your mind, all that you are, are a temple to the Holy Spirit. In fact, let me just tell you something that might blow your mind. If you apprentice Jesus, your whole person is the very place of overlap between heaven and earth. That's what Paul is getting at. And he says this in verse 18, and we all who with unveiled faces meaning we all have full access to God like Moses, contemplate the Lord's glory. That word contemplate is cataparizo. It's to stare at something like in the mirror, contemplate it. And for the Corinthians, this is, they get this because they're a mirror-making city. And the idea is to stare into the face of Jesus, to live into this relationship with Jesus, to contemplate Jesus, this is where we get contemplative prayer and practices and things like that to actually, to actually bring our mind and our imagination into contemplating the Lord's glory. It's not self-help. Okay? Into his image, it says. It says, contemplate the Lord's glory. It says we are being transformed. That's that that metamorphosis language, okay? This is not self-help stuff. This is not willpower stuff. Into the image, becoming like Jesus with ever-increasing glory, and, and it happens over time, and, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. That's what's happening for us. All of this is the byproduct of the Holy Spirit in your life. But listen to this. Gordon Fee He's a guy who wrote a commentary that I've been reading about this passage. He writes this. I thought I'd bring it to you. Through Christ and by the Spirit, we are being transformed so as to bear the likeness for which we were intended at the beginning. 
One takes the spirit lightly in Pauline theology, and Christian experience is at great risk. For herein lies the glory, that by the spirit we not only come to know God, but come to live in his presence in such a way as constantly to be renewed into God's image. Did you catch what he said there, the warning? If you downplay the role of the Holy Spirit in your life, if you shrug off the Holy Spirit or downplay the central role of the Holy Spirit, you will never be transformed to your full potential. You will miss out on what God is trying to do and the person God is trying to create you to be. And willpower can only go so far. To truly change and have freedom, you and I need access to the, a power greater than ourselves. And right now I want to invite uh, Manny Mulliken up. And she is going to take a little bit of this teaching on and share a few things with you. And then I'll wrap things up. Good morning, everybody. My knees are shaking right now, so there's that. Ryan asked me to come up and talk about transformation in the Holy Spirit. <laughs> I was like, are you sure? It's kind of big. Um, so I want to say now, Spirit, thank you that you are here with us. And like Elliot said, we're not inviting you here. You're already here. And I say right now, more of you, Spirit, and less of us, and I ask you to create discomfort, create conviction, and ultimately to bring peace to each of us here. So initially, I was going to rope you guys in with my utter hilarity with childhood stories and the call on my life at a young age. And when I told Ryan <laughs> that my message was going to be 40 minutes long, I could hear his tone in the text, yeah, <laughs> you're going to need to that down. So long story short, Jesus had a call on my life from a very young age, and I've ridden the roller coaster with him from as early as age four. But I want to take you into my adult life and the biggest moment in my adult life when the Spirit came and totally changed my life. So it's 10 years ago, 2008. I was 20 years old at Bible college. And I was there to fix my life, to walk into the magical realm of Bible college where all your problems go away. And I walked into college um, in a dating relationship that had been going on for about three and a half years. And my plan was to make everything that was wrong with that relationship right under the covering of Bible college so that I could marry this guy that I knew was wrong for me. And at that point in time, 20 years old, I was living in the heaviest blanket of shame and of guilt that I have up to this point in my life. And I pray that I never experience that again. Um, but for three years, I had effectively seared my conscience, um, had effectively chosen to be the one in control of my life, and I was going to force what I thought right and what I thought felt good, and then I was going to make it right by going to Bible college. 
It was such a good plan. Um, during that three and a half years, uh, my family had distanced themselves from me. My church had distanced themselves from me. And I was in isolation. And when you're in isolation, and when you're, so when you're in isolation, it can drive you into secrecy. And when you're in secrecy, your habits fester. And the more isolated you are, the more the enemy has a hold on your habits. And I was in the habit of going to this relationship to make me feel okay. And it was going to be okay no matter what. But I remember times I would be driving down the road feeling fine, feeling happy, and the guilt and the shame would overcome me and I would just start bawling. Just driving, just going down the street, it consumed me. And I remember a friend telling me, Mandy, you're not captive to this. And I just thinking, yes, I am. It's been three years. I, I owe it to this guy to stay with him. I owe it to myself. I owe it to how stubborn I've been with my family and my community. And I'm going to make this happen. And yes, I am captive. And I'm going to stay in this captive place. And the thought of giving this relationship up was what made me cry driving down the road. So 2010, I was in my dorm. Everything was fine in the relationship, as much as I convinced myself that it was. And I, I felt the pull one night to the stairwell in our dorm. It was one of the only private places. In um, so I went to the stairwell, and I took my Bible. And of course, there was this ongoing um, discomfort in me that I worked so hard to push away. And it all came to the surface in that moment. And I don't know if you've ever opened the Bible, and the Spirit brings you right to where you need and it like illuminates the truth in a way that you have never experienced before. And that was one of these moments. And I opened up to Isaiah 46. And in that chapter, God is talking about the idolatry of Israel. And in that moment, God named what my habit was. And it was total idolatry. I was bowing down and I was worshiping at the feet of this relationship. And it was immobilizing. I was living a complete double life. And through that passage, God talks about rescuing Israel. And he names his promises over them, that he created them, that he has always carried them, that he will always sustain them, that their, that their idols are weighing them down. Um, and in that moment, I believed God. I believed that he would carry me. I believed that he would rescue out of my idolatry. And it was a breakthrough moment. I can't explain um, the utter bondage that I was in. But in that moment, I experienced such freedom. I remember after that period, after I got out of this relationship, I just remember thinking, gosh, the joy of the Lord is my strength. I am so free. I finally understand what that verse means. I remember like doodling it and like putting it up on my wall. The joy of the Lord is my strength. I felt so free. And it was a breakthrough moment. And we have these breakthrough moments. And, and those are the times where God just radically transforms you. And he just kind of like lurches you forward in your transformation. 
And they are so beautiful. And they are so special. But that's not really where the meat of the transformation is. Uh, breakthrough moments, they're usually, they're about freedom, and they're about healing, and they're incredibly powerful. But they're not really about deep character change. They're not really about living a life apprenticing Jesus. So you better believe, after that, I felt this freedom. I still had no idea how to be in a healthy relationship. In fact, I dated a wacko that I was just so disoriented. Like, I'm free, and now anyone will be better than who I was dating. I, was, I didn't have the habits in place to put me in a position to be in a healthy state. So I had this freedom, but I was still kind of unanchored. So much of the change that happens in our life is not in those beautiful and precious breakthrough moments. It's actually in the process, in the day-to-day. If you've ever looked at somebody and you think, gosh, they have got it all together. Like, gosh, I wish I had what they had. They don't have it all together. They have thousands of times made the choice in little ways that we've never seen to abide, to abide in the vine. So John 15, John 15 says, Jesus is saying, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be given to you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples." So the word abide. I don't know why, but when I think of the word abide, I think of myself in flannel pajamas by a fire with hot chocolate, like feeling cozy. (laughs) That's seriously the image that comes to my mind when I think of the word abide. Abide is a verb. Abide is an action. It's not just living somewhere. The actual definition is to remain stable or in a fixed state to continue in a place. So to stay somewhere, to remain in him, it's an active choice. I wish it was sitting by the fire in flannel, but it's not. So we don't do this very well. We don't do it well at all. We love the mountaintop experience. We love going to camp. We love the powerful, emotive message. We love the great worship set. We love the next new trend. Ultimately, what it comes down to is we love feeling good, which really is putting us in the position of, of being God. We love to feed ourselves, to consume, and to feel good. And we don't like to stay. But a is a command. So this idea of the process of remaining, which is a verb, it looks a lot like setting your alarm clock 
at 5 a.m. It looks a lot like when you're doing the dishes, intentionally fixing your mind on him. With honest relationships and people that will into your life. It looks like living with integrity when no one is looking. To be like Jesus in the most painful relationships. It can look like saying no to that good thing when you actually need to rest. It can look like saying yes and you want to stay comfortable. It's going to look like forgiving and forgiving again and again. It's going to look like showing up and saying the prayer, more of you and less of me, Jesus, when you walk into a room. And this process is often slow, and it's unglamorous, and it's unnoticed, and nobody is standing around cheering you on, giving you accolades. You don't get any instant gratification. But in Galatians, it talks about the fruit of taking this action, of remaining, of abiding. So Galatians 5, I'm going to read the Passion Translation. I didn't give that translation to you. And I actually got special permission from Ryan to read the Passion Translation. I think he thinks it's too fluffy, but I love it. So Galatians 5, 22 through 26, it says, The fruit produced by the Holy Spirit within you is divine love in all its varied expressions, joy that overflows, patience that endures, kindness in action, a life full of virtue, faith that prevails, heart, spirit. Never set the law above these qualities, for they are meant to be limitless. Keep in mind that we who belong to Jesus, the anointed one, we have already experienced crucifixion. For everything connected with our self-life was put to death on the cross and crucified with Messiah. We must live in the Holy Spirit and follow after him. So may we never be arrogant or look down on another, for each of us is an original. Let's see, that diminishes the value of others. So here's what we do. We think about the fruits of the Spirit, and we start comparing, and we start doubting that we even have this fruit in our life. Or we look at them and we say, wow, her faith is so much better than my gentle spirit. It has so much more value. But as an apprentice of Jesus, the fruits of the Spirit are limitless in your life. And I want to say that you are not God. <laughs> you don't get to decide if the way that he is moving in you or the way that you feel it or don't feel it is valuable enough. You don't get to uh, place a value, quantify or qualify the works of the Holy Spirit because he is at work. As an apprentice of Jesus, he is at work. I can look back at my life and I can say now my deepest desire is to know him and make him known. But I can't break apart every situation I've ever been and say, oh, he was working. 
Am I doing that? Is that me? Okay. So, he is moving. He's moving in every facet of this world. And as, as a believer, as a, an apprentice, he is moving in your life. But if you feel like you're not experiencing you are at a standstill. I want to say first, like, are you, sh- are you sure about that? Do you know all of the ways that he moves? And I'll answer for you, no, you don't. But you may have, a, have sin in your life. You may be bowing down to an idol like I was. And I'd be willing to bet that in this moment, if that's true, you feel it. If you were to give a gut answer, you would be able to say what that is. So you may be quenching the Spirit in some way. And all that means is you're restraining him. You're putting out the fire of the Holy Spirit. And in that passage, Isaiah 46 from the stairwell, after he talks about the weight of idolatry, he says, my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. What I have said that I will bring about. What I have planned, that I will do. Listen to me, you stubborn-hearted, you who are now far from my righteousness. I'm bringing my righteousness near, and it's not far away. And he's saying, God's going to do what he has planned. He's going to move how he will move. And do you want to be on board with that or not? And that's a real question. Maybe you don't right now. Maybe you want to keep bowing down. Maybe you want to keep carrying the weight. And, and that could be true. I, I mean that. But if you want to jump on board with him, it's time to take a look at what are you worshiping. Because unintentional formation is happening. Um, and I also want to say, when you feel the weight of that sin, Don't look at it and be overwhelmed by how far you can see that you need to go. Because all that he is calling us to do is to abide. And abiding is is being in two places at once. Like Ryan has said, it's living your life and in your mind and in your soul, your mind, will, and emotions, you are realigning yourself constantly to the spirit. And and God does do the heavy lifting. I can, I can say all of the transformation that I've experienced up to this point has not been based on just my effort. And it is so true. Uh, without him, we can't. And without us, he won't. And he really, does, he really does do the heavy lifting. So don't be overwhelmed by how far you feel like you have to go. Abide. Abide today. Don't even think about it for tomorrow, for next month, for 10 years. Just do it today and see where he will take you. Thanks, Manny. Really quickly as we close, two things you need to know. All of this takes place over time. Like all the significant change in your life takes time. It's over time. It's harder than we want it to be, and it takes longer than we expect. Second thing I will tell you is this. It happens through the hard knocks of life. So you talk to the people in your life that look like they've been transformed and changed. It's happened. You ask them, what happened? 
how did you change in your life? Well, I went through this time of unemployment. I experienced this death and this loss in my life. I went through a, a diagnosis or a significant breakup. And usually those are the things that we hate and we try to avoid. But those are the times that have the potential to change us the most. And that's over and over and over again in the New Testament. And so let me just say this as we close. Uh, this last week, black, in the last two weeks, uh, Eugene Peterson passed away. If you're not sure who that is, he, he was one of the many things he did, but he wrote the message translation of the scriptures. Is it just a genius man, a lover of Jesus? And at his funeral, Leif, his son, said that actually he fooled everybody over his 50 years of ministry, that he only had one sermon. He only had one sermon. He fooled everybody. And it was this. God loves you. God is on your side. He is coming after you, and he is relentless. Okay? And so this morning, this is it. This is the end of our service. Our encouragement is that you would begin to retune and retool your life and set the table for the Spirit to move so that you could be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what Jesus did. And I'm going to pray. And really what we want to do is after that, if you want to uh, head out into the lobby and wait a few minutes before our, our, our gathering for our annual meeting, um, that is fine. But if you want prayer today, if you need someone to pray over you or to pray with you, or if you need someone to encourage you through uh, the Spirit in, in any way, I invite you to stay here. There are going to be people standing around in the back and maybe up towards the front. And if they look very welcoming, <laughs> I would encourage you to, to approach them and say, yes, I would love for you to pray with me. I'd love for you to pray for me. And you don't have to get into anything detail-wise unless you'd like, okay? So let me pray.